Good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day, really, to get our summer going. It's good to see all of you here who are not traveling and able to worship together. If you have a Bible with you, please grab it and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, where we are actually going to be continuing and concluding our study on deacons in the church. You know, as I was uh, preparing for this, I was just looking back over the calendar and reflecting on just how much time we've spent, really eight messages, in talking about elders and deacons, functionally the leadership in the church. If there's anything that needs to be right in the church, it has to be the foundation, and leadership is absolutely important. And given that God says in His Word that He has given the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers who are leaders over the church to equip the church for the work of ministry and have deacons to assist them, we have to get this right in the church. You know, some of you might know that before I uh, was in pastoring, I was actually an engineer. That's where most of my training is. And on my pinky finger, I still wear the iron ring that is issued to Canadian engineers upon graduation from a Canadian university. It came about as a result of a poorly built and engineered bridge in Quebec in 1907 that actually collapsed and catastrophically killed some 75 workers that were on it. That led to this impetus of wanting to form a society to help create a ceremony for engineers to remind them of the incredible charge and responsibility that engineers have to the public when they do their work. Engineers are to be reminded in terms of ethics of their responsibility to care for human lives. Now, the ring, if you've ever gotten a chance to see it up close, is not pretty. Nobody wears this because it's nice. We wear this ring because it's made of steel or iron, it's kind of, and, and, and it's, it's, it's functional. You know, the fact that it's not pretty and we're told that we wear it on our right hand and not on our left hand is because the ring is so tough with its 12 half-circle uh, carved facets into it, which are about 15 degrees offset, very precise. The ring is so tough and so sharp that they warned us it will cut the wedding ring off of your finger if you continue to wear it on the wrong hand. Just to give you an idea of just how solid it is, in fact, the ring is so solid that if you're not careful as an engineer when you're working with it and you place your hand carelessly, it will actually tear up the surface of a desk or even your new laptop you know, if you're not you know, careful about it. You know, All this to say is that the ring that we wear on our fingers serves as a very tangible, physical, and strong reminder that if we are careless with our civil or our electrical engineering, the lives of millions of people will suffer for it. And you know, when I think about the Church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the Church of Jesus Christ is really the most important spiritual engineering work in the world. It's a temple that's made out of living stones. And we do not, and if we don't build it as the Israelites did, the tabernacle in the wilderness, according to the pattern that God showed Moses there on the mountain, we will not only dishonor our God, but we will actually endanger the spiritual lives of millions of people in this world in, the, in an eternal stakes of hell and heaven. So, church, to get the church right, 
and to build on the right foundation that is God's Word and Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is not a simple thing that we do so that our church looks prettier or looks nice. Our very own lives and the lives of people hang on this. So it's my hope that as we conclude this series on elders and deacons in the church, we would take it to heart with a sober-mindedness, knowing that this is essential for us as a church. And may God move our hearts as we see this last portion of the Scriptures today to be excited by what we see here and help us to be a church that is ordered rightly according to His Word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you, Lord, for allowing us, God, to hold in our hands, God, copies of the precious Word of God. Father, thank you that in North America, God, we are a literate people who have access to Bibles. And oftentimes, Father, we confess that we don't read it as we should. We don't treasure your word, O oh God, or record you the worth and dignity that you as the king of all the universe are due. So, Father, we come humbly to you as undeserving children, as children, God, who are recipients of everything because of what you have done for us. Lord, I pray, would you feed us today from your word? Open the scriptures, O oh God, to us so that we might see, hear, and be moved by your word to obedience, joyful obedience to you. Father, I ask for your help. I've written words, O oh God, but these words are pointless unless your Holy Spirit speaks today. So would you speak to us, my Father? We ask this, God, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Church, with your Bibles open, you can follow along as I read this section on deacons, 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified and not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You know, from this text, we learn that the faithful deacons of the Lord Jesus Christ are exactly what their name implies, that is, servants, which is what we have said that that Greek word diakonos means. Furthermore, we're reminded that they are servants not just of their own, they're not servants of their own house primarily, but they are servants of His house. And therefore, the way that deacons or servants of the church must conduct themselves needs to be done in a way that fits the royal household of the king of all the universe. Now, I'm very much aware that for most of us who live here in individualistic North America, the idea that any volunteer organization would scrutinize the lives of people who are willing to volunteer for it almost seems rather ridiculous. What, isn't it good enough that somebody wants to help out in the church? Why do you have to dig into their lives and get real personal with them? Now, it is true that here in North America, we as a church have the ability to have a non-profit society status. 
But the Church of Jesus Christ, unlike a any other nonprofit, isn't just some sort of loose association of volunteers that comes and goes as it pleases. No, the language that the Scriptures use to describe the church is that of a family. And furthermore, the body, the very body of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Himself. You know, Ephesians 5.23 talks about this, and it says, Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. When you look at 1 Corinthians, you see the same thing. 1 Corinthians 12.27 says this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, we who have maybe grown up in the church or been around the church for quite a while, sometimes take this kind of language for granted, and we don't realize what the immense significance is of being called the very body of Jesus Christ. You know, God hasn't chosen in His plan of redemption to save people, although He could have, by introducing Him to a giant face of Jesus Christ in the sky. God could easily have done that. He could have chosen to write His name in the clouds and leave people to Himself through that. But that's not how, in the Scriptures, we read that God introduces people to Himself. Rather, instead, He introduces unbelievers to Himself through His body who is here on earth, the saved and redeemed people in the church. In other words, when people feel the hands of Christians taking care of their wounds and feeding the hungry, what they actually feel are God's hands taking care of them. People see the footsteps of God as Christians go across different lands, crossing physical and cultural barriers just to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. As Christians walk in this world, people see the footsteps of God. And when people are listen to the preaching of the word and we talk to them about the gospel, what they actually hear is the voice of God. We speak human words, we talk to them from the Bible, but ultimately it's not us who speak. There is another one who speaks while we speak. And the voice of the Holy Spirit, the Good Shepherd's voice, is what they hear as the Good Shepherd himself talks to the sheep who are not yet part of his fold and calls them out of darkness and towards himself. We talk to them about Jesus Christ who came to die on the cross for their sins and how all human beings live under the wrath of God and they don't look at us if God opens their hearts and say, you're ridiculous. They say, I am convicted of my sin. I can't believe nobody has ever told me this. I repent and I fall down on my knees and I ask Jesus to come into my life and make me new. That's why the church, brothers and sisters, is unique. No other nonprofit society in the world has the privilege of being identified with the God of all the universe and furthermore being entrusted with the work of carrying out his ministry as his very own body. To be the body of Christ is a significant thing. We are the very agents that God has chosen to use of his salvation, his mouthpiece, his hands, his feet. Not because he needs us, but because he privileges us to do so. The church of Jesus Christ does not come in its own authority. I don't get up here and speak on my own authority. I speak from the word, but it is the authority of our king that carries power. And that is the reason that the church has power. You can see why then, if that is what the church is, it is absolutely essential that the church 
be outfitted and be led by qualified and tested individuals who represent Jesus well. The church has to test. You know, the idea of testing is so unpleasant. For those of you who graduated from high school and college, many of you have said, I never want to do another test again. And for the most part of your adult life, you probably have avoided tests, you know. But testing really is actually a part of the Christian life and occurs regularly. For example, the word for testing or examination that is used here actually appears in other parts of the Bible as well. For example, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, we read this about what God has to say about examination of ministry fruit. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will be made manifest For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In other words, what this work, this verse has to say about work is that God demands quality work. And the judgment day, when God tests that final work when we see him face to face, will show us whether we've been building with gold that will survive the fire or building with hay that will be burnt up in the fire. You know, on that final day, there will be ministries that are huge and have lots of apparent fruit that will be shown to be nothing more than smoke and ashes because they are not built on God's work. They look great to human beings but they do not honor him because they are not centered on God's word. And then there will be all those little churches and faithful ministers who have served, individual Christians who have not gained any recognition in the eyes of the world, and yet God will look at them and say, you have built with gold the whole of your life. Enter now into the joy of your master. See, testing is so important because we need to know what we're actually building with. In the Lord's the word is used also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to describe the Lord's Supper. 11.28 says, Let a person examine himself then, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, we as believers need to examine our own lives before we take communion because we can't eat of the bread or drink of the cup that symbolizes his blood and live a life that's inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do that, and the Bible tells us we profane or make a mockery of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that we claim to believe in and live by and that we need and that we are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. We mock that, and God will pour out His judgment on us. So all this to say is that testing is an integral part of the Christian life. And only tested and proven individuals should represent the church of Jesus Christ, lest unqualified and dishonorable people lead people away from Jesus Christ to hell instead of towards Christ and towards heaven. You know, everybody understands, even in our world, how important testing is when lives are at stake. You know, for example, if you go and sign up to go skydiving here in Vancouver, I guarantee you, if you've never done skydiving before, you will spend good money to invest in a proper skydiving kit. You will not go on Craigslist and buy a used, homemade, DIY skydiving kit. Why? Don't you like saving money? You like saving money, but you won't do so at the risk of your own life. 
things are endangering sort of to our own lives, we don't go cheap with that. How much more so with souls? You know, if you're building condos here in Vancouver, right, to capitalize on the high real estate prices, and you have the opportunity to hire someone to do it, would you hire a professional engineer who's built hundreds of apartment complexes, or would you go to UBC and find a second-year college student who's cheap, but whose qualifications are that he has won just about every Lego building contest in the Lower Mainland? The reason that you would not go with the college student is that you understand, though his work might look beautiful and his Lego architecture be admired around the world, that is no basis for putting a person in charge of building houses that will take care of families. Those things need to stand and not just look good. So that's why testing is important. You know, a sword that snaps in the middle of a battle or a gun that misfires or a seatbelt that doesn't hold you in when you crash will kill the person who is using it. So also the church can't appoint unqualified individuals, untested individuals, lest they also cause spiritual destruction to those who are around them. If you're outlining, I put it like this in your outline. Number one, heading here, the requirements of a deacon... A, deacons must be tested lest they damage the church's gospel witness. So deacons need to be tested lest they damage the church's gospel witness. Now, I think it's clear that from what we've just talked about, why testing is important and that testing is a biblical concept. The question for us, though, in the church is, what does testing actually look like? Now, throughout church history... The testing process of deacons and elders really has varied, and it takes different various shapes and forms throughout church history and in different denominations. What I'd like to do is just give you an example, you know, that I've pulled from a Presbyterian circle of how a potential deacon is nominated and put forward. So in the Presbyterian Church of America, for instance, or some other circles, an individual is spotted by a member in the congregation, and they think he meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, and they nominate him with permission to be put forward as a potential deacon for the church. That individual then is taken through a 12-week or a course with a pastor who sits with them and explains through the biblical qualifications and what a deacon actually does. After that, the elders then of the church will visit his house and interview both him and his wife if he is married to see if he's a suitable candidate and whether his wife agrees to be able to let him stand. The pastor teaching elder then will be the one to examine him on the matters of faith and of doctrine to conduct an interview to see whether he understands his Bible. And then after that, they will contact the character references to determine whether he's above reproach, usually calling two people who are not Christians, sometimes a neighbor, and usually your boss if you're employed by someone. And if it's all good, the elders will then bring this individual before the congregation where he'll give his testimony to everyone and everyone will get a chance to ask questions and scrutinize them. And finally, if the congregation affirms it, he'll be installed as a deacon in a public service. You know, I wish I'd talked a bit about this, of what it looks like, the testing process for an elder, but all of this to say is that there is a level of rigor, I think, that is required for those who are to represent the church of Jesus Christ. You know, to give you an idea of what that interview of a deacon might look like, I've pulled together some resources and different things that I've read and some questions I made of my own that actually walk through 1 Timothy chapter 3 
and show you what it's like to be tested. So some of these questions, for example, would be, you go through verse 8, which reads, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, and you ask the potential candidate, do you have a tendency towards gossip and sharing confidential information? Do you drink alcohol? And if so, is there a time in which you have ever gotten drunk? Do you struggle with a love for money? Do you give regularly to your church? Or on the flip side, do you have debt actually that would hamper you from being effective in your ministry or even bring reproach to the name of Christ by the way you have used your money? You would go to verse 9, you would say, which says, the deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, okay? This means that a deacon doesn't just chop bread, as we saw last week, but is an individual who knows biblical doctrine and truth and lives by it as well, so he has a clear conscience. We would ask things like, excuse me, can you explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to me? What's your understanding of sin and personal holiness and the nature of the church, how have you been growing in your knowledge of God's Word? What are your Bible habits or Bible reading habits like? Are there any theological books that you've been reading recently that have made a huge impact on you? In the last three years, what are the biggest sanctifying effects that God has been performing in your life to bring it in conformity to God's Word? We'll go to verse 10, which says that, the deacon must be a tested individual and a blameless individual. I would ask things like, how are you currently serving in the church so that we can assess you? Or are there any sins in your life in the areas of money, sex, and pride that would actually make you less than blameless to serve here in the church? Not asking for perfection, but I'm just saying, are there ongoing things in your life that you would not, would not allow you to stand as a proper candidate? What would your neighbors and your bosses, if they found out you were a Christian, do they even know you're a Christian, what would they say about the way that you work and how you conduct yourself? Verse 12 says here that a deacon must be a one-woman man managing his household well. Now, when I talked about elders, we already discussed this, so I'm not going to go into detail, but the idea here is one-woman man means maritally faithful and also making sure that your children are well-behaved. Questions we would ask are like this. Have you been unfaithful to your spouse? Does she approve of you becoming a deacon at the church? How do you disciple and spiritually discipline your children? We all know that ministry is tough. Can you share about a time in which the trials of ministry impacted your family and how did you actually work through it? Do you see how different this is from a common job interview? See, when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, it's not just about competency to do the job. It's about character as well. And if this individual passes the test and his life looks blameless, just as it says at the end of verse 10, then let him serve. In the official capacity of the church, you cannot have a poor reputation lest you bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ. And this is something even our secular world understands about how important it is to hire or to install people of character and not just competency into positions of leadership. You know, some of you know that my family is Singaporean, actually, and that uh, Lee Kuan Yew is the name of the man who is essentially the founder of modern Singapore. 
He basically was the prime minister for Singapore for over 30 years and then continued to serve in different capacities in the government after his retirement. He was responsible for transforming Singapore from an old slum in which people made about 400 bucks a month to a modern, technologically advanced city which has no resource, natural resources of its own to be a trading hub and a wealthy city in Southeast Asia where the average medium wage now is over $40,000. Um, per person. It's really incredible what has taken place, but if you read the writings of Lee Kuan Yew and you ask, what are the reasons for his success, for this individual who was called one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century, you read in his very own writings about what he believed was important to succeed in government. He said in his parliamentary speech of 1977 this, the way we conduct ourselves in this chamber, he's talking about his cabinet ministers, and outside his MPs, members of parliament, will decide whether in 1981 we will get the maximum votes. The elections are fought from now, not in 1981. We made sure that no MP, no parliamentary secretary, no minister misbehaved or abused his power. Because if you do, it is a very tight and swift, compact society. It spreads like wildfire. Please do not misbehave yourself. Anybody who has a paternity suit against him is out, and there will be a by-election. In other words, you know what Lee Kuan Yew is saying here? What he's saying is that if a cabinet minister of his, for example, somehow abused his position of authority and scandalized the community by fathering a child out of wedlock, which resulted in a paternity suit to determine the identity of that child, he says that cabinet minister, that individual, is no longer fit to lead and to hold office. He goes on to mention that same speech, that he spent 13 years building a party so that people could trust, so that even when they were campaigning and they were slanderously accused of corruption during their camp political campaign, he said, we did not need to silence our opponents lest people call foul on us. We simply let them speak, and after we won and our reputations defended us, then we acted. You see how important it is to have a good reputation. Even world governments understand this. You want to build a country and take something from zero to 100, what you need are individuals not only of competency, but of character as well. How much more so the church of Jesus Christ? How important it is to have a reputation of love, good works, and moral faithfulness so that when slander and smear campaigns come against us as a church and leaders, and yes, they will, you will be able to say as Paul did, you know how I lived amongst you for three years. I did not cease to admonish you with tears. I coveted no one's gold or silver. You know that these hands Work to provide for my own needs. I took nothing from anyone. And you know he's true because you've seen the way that he's lived. You know, I think it's clear from us as Scripture here that deacons do need to be tested individuals. But there's another thing that I want to adjust, address in verse 11 that I had skipped over initially. Now, in our ESV Bible, it says this in our text, their wives likewise must be dignified. But if you look a bit lower in your Bible, there's a footnote there that says this could also read, the women likewise. Now, this is how the NASB Bible and the NIV read. See, the Greek word for woman or gynikos, depending on the context, can either mean wife or woman. 
Now, there's debate over this in Christian circles, but I honestly think it's highly unlikely that this refers to wives, but rather refers to women deacons. And I want to give you at least nine reasons for this. One is that in our text, the word likewise suggests a new category. So you have elders, likewise deacons, and then likewise, I think, female deacons is what is implied here, not wives who would be connected to deacons. The second thing is that there are no qualifications made earlier about elders' wives. I think it would be very odd to describe qualifications for deacons' wives and not to say anything about elders' wives. The third thing to know about this text is that word their, their wives, does not appear in the Greek text. It's actually an insertion made by the translators of the ESV because they believe that the best translation is wives and therefore you need to put the possessive pronoun in there to make it work in English. But it's actually not there in the Greek text. The fourth thing is that this word deacon actually just means servant, right? Actually can refer to either men or women. It's a gender neutral word. Fifth thing is that the character qualities for the woman in verse 11 Dignified, sober-minded are actually character qualities that are also written of and required of the elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. So I think this suggests that it's an official position in the church. Number six, I would say that Romans chapter 16, 1, if you know the book of Romans, talks about a woman named Phoebe who is called a servant or same word, diakonos, of the church there at Cancray. Now, the fact that it mentions specifically the church at Kenkre there tells us that it most likely is also an official position. And if Phoebe is a female, then what it means is that there was a deaconess position available to her. The seventh thing that we learn from this text is that deacons aren't required to teach. It's nowhere mentioned here that deacons are teachers. It doesn't mean that deacons aren't capable of teaching, but the point is that deacons aren't required to teach. And this is consistent when you read 1 Timothy chapter 2 about the prohibitions on women exercising authority and teaching over men. If women aren't required to teach as deacons, therefore there's no contradiction there. Number eight, given that if you look at the way that the text is structured, verses 8 to 10 talk about general character qualifications that really anybody can sort of fulfill. And then verse 12 after that talks about male-specific qualifications, that is how the man leads his house. You can clearly see why Paul, if he's writing about female deacons, will write it exactly where he did in verse 11. After discussing general qualifications, he mentions what women additionally would need to or what to do with the female deacons. And then he goes on after that to discuss the male-only qualifications for those being leaders in their own home. The ninth thing that I would mention is that there are some early church history that attest to the fact that there were female deacons in the church. For example, one of the earliest letters that we have from AD 112 is a letter from a guy named Pliny writing to the emperor Trajan about what to do with all these Christians that he keeps arresting and killing. And as he wants to learn more about the Christian faith, he actually captures two of these slave women who are called, he says, in the church in Latin, ministre. And ministre in Latin is really just the translation of that Greek word, diakonos. So he had captured two deacons, and he tortures them to find out more about what they believe, but he's so disappointed that all they actually believe in their super-secret cult is a bunch of what he calls superstition and silly beliefs. But all this to say is that you find in early on in Christianity that there is evidence for female deacons who served in the church. Clement of Alexandria was also another church father 
who mentions that there are women servants or female deacons who travel alongside the apostles or other ministers, not as wives, but as sisters in the Lord who served. Origen, for example, the early church father, acknowledges Phoebe as a female deacon in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. And there's other writers that you can read about that talk about what female deacons actually did in their church. Many times they served right alongside their male counterparts doing exactly what the men did except specifically towards women. For example, they baptized women, they taught newly converted women, and they visited non-Christian homes to care for the sick women and also to bathe the ill women in the homes. Now, one of the things you know about the early church is that there was a period in early church history where people went for baptism in their class, and they were baptized naked, actually. And so they separated men and women, understandably so. You see how useful a female deacon would be in such a case, especially if they baptized in that way, why you would need some, uh, someone to do that. You know, in these cases, we almost want to say, because half of the world is made up of women, don't send a man to do a woman's work. Send a woman instead to minister to the half of the world that needs to know Jesus and needs to be served in the name of Jesus Christ. Without female servants in the church, the church will be absolutely crippled. So I put this in your outline, point B, if you're outlining. Qualified women can be deacons too, verse 11. Now, female deacons can't be slanderers. They have to be qualified as well because their behavior also reflects on the person of Jesus Christ. So, you might look at this and say, okay, all right, I see that. Maybe female deacons, yes, deacons need to be qualified. But why would anyone actually want to do this in the church? Is there a benefit to this? In North America, we don't like responsibility, you know. We like freedom and vacations and other things. The idea of taking on an official position to serve for nothing. What do you get about it? Is there any benefit to it? Well, actually, yes, there is. And Paul in the Bible, takes very, you know, he goes, he, he actually explains why there are benefits to this. I think God wants us to understand this. If you look at this in verse 13, I put this in your outline, number two, the rewards of being a deacon. There are actually rewards. The first reward about that we read actually in our text is that of a good standing. And what I think it means is that it means honor in the eyes of the brothers and sisters who are in your church and also God himself. I think it's unlikely that it refers to non-Christians because at the time that this was written, Christians were hardly popular and they were persecuted for being enemies literally of the state. It doesn't mean that a Christian can't be, you know, um, favored in the eyes of non-Christians around them. I just don't think that's the primary emphasis here. I think this actually echoes Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus speaks, Whoever will be great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever will be first amongst you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I put this in your outline. Number two, a deacons gain a good standing in the Christian community and before God. The point is it's, it's not wrong to want to be great. Just that in the Christian church, the way that you become great in the world is not by making much of yourself, but by making much of Jesus and making very little of yourself. You decrease so that He can increase and God will raise you up. 
And the world, though the world around you might laugh at you and not understand a thing about what you are doing in serving those who can never repay you, your God sees and your brothers and sisters who love the Lord Jesus Christ see as well and give you the honor that will fit you. God always sees humble background service done in His name. You know, the second thing that we learn from this text about the rewards that you get as a deacon is it says your great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. And by this, I think what the apostle means is that if you serve well, if you serve really well, you will have confidence that your faith is not only real, but you will also really live it out as well. Now, sometimes when you have doubts about your Christian faith, and you will have doubts as you go through life, Sometimes what you need is an intellectual answer or an argument from Scripture to just simply set your heart at ease. You need a brother and sister to just talk to you and say, you're not seeing this right. Let me show you from God's Word. And you say, ah, thank you for solving that problem for me. I feel a lot better right now, secure in my faith, and I'm okay. But there is another ordinary way to gain confidence in your Christian walk, and that's this, to have great confidence in the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. One of the ways that you get that, we learn from this, is to simply live it out well. Deacon, go out there and serve. Serve well, and it says you will gain great confidence in your faith. See, if your Christian life feels dull, uneventful, you question where God is really there, and your Christian life makes no difference to the way you live. People don't even know you're a Christian by the way that you post online or the way that you talk. There's a problem with that. Maybe you're not really living out your faith. Maybe something in your life needs to change. Maybe what you need to do, God is calling you to, to give away your time and your energy to serve brothers and sisters around you, serve in your church here, to serve at your workplace, to minister to people in God's name. And as you do so, see how God quells your fears and worries as He multiplies your study time or your productivity at work. Give away your money and see how God's hand supplies you and feeds you day after day. God fed Elijah with ravens and had him drink water from a brook when there was a drought in the land. Do you not think that God can feed you and clothe you and take care of you, even if you spend your last dollar on him? You know, you give away your hobbies and your comforts, all these things that you need because you need to relax. I'm an introvert, so I need to unwind this way. Introverts, extroverts, you know what you need most for recharging? It's not time alone. It's not life of a party. It's time with Jesus in the presence of your Lord and Savior, who is your very life, the one in whom your life is hidden. That's what you need. And as you give away the things that you think you need to refresh yourself and you turn to Christ, can you not see Him as you give to Him of yourself that He will give you supernatural peace? the peace that surpasses all understanding and guards your heart and minds in Christ Jesus, though your circumstances dictate that you should worry. People will look at you and say, that's impossible. And you're right, you say, that is impossible. But all things are possible for the one who believes in Christ. You want to have confidence in your Christian life? It's very simple in one sense. Live like one. Live like one and see how God provides for you as you live like one. You know, Helen Rosevere was a single Christian missionary who gave most of her life to serving in the Congo in Africa. She tells the story about how a mother in the rural hospital where she was serving at left behind a 
premature and tiny little baby as well as a two-year-old crying sister. She died that night. They had no incubator or electricity to take care of this little one. And as they were trying to fill the last warm hot water, hot water bottle that was made of rubber that they had to keep the little baby warm, the nurse told her that the bottle burst and they had nothing actually to use to warm the child. To try to get the child to live through the night, she says, I know it's hot during the day, but nighttime is often drafty and cold. She asked the student midwife to sleep with the baby in her arms and to try to shield the baby with her own body so that the child who was premature would try to live through the night. The next day, she told the orphanage children about the situation and also asked them to pray. There was a 10-year-old girl there named Ruth who, with the usual, she says, boldness and bluntness of the African children, prayed to God and said, God, please send us a rubber water bottle for the baby. The baby needs it today because if she doesn't get it tonight, she will die, so please send it this afternoon. And also, because the little girl who is two-year-old is crying and lost her mommy, please send her a dolly as well so that she knows that God loves her. Helen was shocked by the boldness of that prayer, but that very afternoon, a 22-pound package arrived from home. It had been traveling for five months. It was full of gifts, but as she reached down to the middle and to the bottom of that thing and she grabbed hold of something rubbery, she pulled out from that box a hot water rubber bottle for that baby. She held that bottle and she looked at it in shock that God had answered that prayer but Ruth pushed by her and said, if God sent the water bottle, he surely sent the dolly as well. And she reached to the very bottom of the box and she pulled out a beautiful little doll and gave it to the little girl. She asked Helen, she said, can I actually go over there and give the dolly to the little girl so that she knows that Jesus loves her? You know, church, you, you want to live for Jesus? That's the kind of stories that you get. You understand what God means personally when he says in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24, before they call, I will answer. See, you want to learn how to love reading your Bible? You want to learn how to love the Word of God? It's so simple. Just do this. Take the promises of God that are in the Bible for His faithful and say, that is a promise for me. I will live by this, I will trust in it, and God, will you make good on your word towards me so that I can savor and treasure your word and know that you are good for life. And as you encounter situations, as you go into ministry that are absolutely impossible, and you see God's hand answer, you will see your faith in Jesus Christ strengthen. You will cry out to help, and you will see him answer before you even ask. And your heart, the eyes of your heart will be open to the invisible realities of God in this world and you will know Him in a way that you have never known Him before. You know, church, I can't tell you how many verses I have memorized in the Bible. People often ask me, why do you memorize the Bible? Do you just have a good memory? I'm like, no, I memorize it because I need it. Do you go up to a person who is on anti-rejection drugs for the rest of their life and you see the six or eight different kinds of medicine that they have to take, two in the morning, five at nighttime, one in the afternoon, all these things, and you say, wow, how did you memorize your drug schedule? That's absolutely amazing. You must have a great memory. And they will say to you, I, I don't memorize this for fun. I take these because if I don't, I won't make it in life. I'll die. The same thing is true for the Christian. 
You want to live the Christian life? You will die without the Word of God to buoy you up and to give you promises by which you can stand by. You don't memorize God's Word because you want to show off or play Bible Jeopardy in the church. You memorize it because you need it for your soul. You know, Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Right? Don't worry about what you're going to eat or how you're going to live. God will always take care of you if you serve Him. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 tells us to keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise you can take to the bank. Some of you, because you are Christians, were persecuted by your family. You take verses like Psalm 27.10, which says, For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord, the Lord will take me in. You can take that with you, stick it on your wall, and depend on that for life. Take 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 8 verses 9, when you are suffering in this life and trials seem so difficult. Think of the Apostle Paul who had a messenger from Satan that afflicted him. He says in that verse, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You feel weak? So did Paul. And you will see the power of God in your weakness. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 35, and think as you serve the church, and you give to people who will never be able to give to you back, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Though you may be empty materially, you will be rich and full spiritually if you serve the Lord. Learn what it means, brothers and sisters, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you will have confidence as you serve in your Christian life that no amount of arguments or books can ever do for you. There are those in this world who talk and preach and speak like they know a lot about God. And then there are those who talk because they actually know God. And you know the difference. I put in your outline number 2B this. Deacons gain confidence in living in and in living out their faith in Christ. Deacons gain confidence in and in living out their faith in Christ. So you may deacon or serve because you see the needs in your church. But know this as well, that by deaconing or serving, you will also satisfy your very own soul as your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ grows. You may serve the church, but never forget that as you serve the church, God will serve you as well. You know, church, let me just ask you as we wrap this up, is God asking you for something? Is He calling you to serve Him? Is He calling you to take bold steps of faith in your service to Him? Are you struggling in your Christian faith and life because it seems so ordinary and you feel very little of God's good pleasure? then I would just urge you in your life to consider how God wants you to live differently in your life. Maybe what he's calling you to do right now is to cut down your hours at work that's stressing you out and driving you away from the fellowship of God's people and giving you undue worry and anxiety. You don't need it. Serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Enjoy the fellowship of his saints and see God provide for you. Perhaps God is calling some of you here who are prayer warriors to set aside a day of the month to fast and pray for your church. Maybe God is calling you to be on your knees right now in the mornings praying for our church and praying for ministry here on the North Shore and beyond 
maybe God is calling you with your language skills and your abilities to start a new ministry right here that will serve the needs of foreigners who need to know Jesus, but you are uniquely equipped to do. Perhaps God is calling you to give away a significant amount of your wealth, not necessarily here, but to missionaries and to other places so that the gospel can go forward. Perhaps if you're not a Christian here and you're sitting here today, God is calling you to give of your entire life over to Him so that He can make you into something you could never have dreamed of and give you a new hope in Him as He forgives you of your sin. And brothers and sisters, the requirements of those who serve in an official capacity of the Lord's church are very high. Humanly impossible, it almost seems, but with the Lord's help, the task that He asks us to do will always be possible with Him. And my hope for us, church, as we wrap this up and as we move forward in the next few months to discerning and testing deacons and elders to serve in the church, that we might become a church that is well-ordered, well-structured, built on a foundation of God's Word that will serve people in the name of Jesus and lead them to our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You're a God who not only saves us, God, but allows us to be in your family and to represent you as part of your body. Father, I beg and I ask, because there is no God like you, I ask you, God, to bless the process that we will go through as we think about elders and deacons for the church who are qualified and tested, that you will choose to serve here. God, our only desire is to honor you and to obey you with joy in our hearts. So I pray, O oh God, that you would honor your word and you would build your church, O oh God, not so that we can make much of ourselves, God, but so that we might have precious jewels, believe people who come to know Christ to offer before you. Father, I ask, God, if you're convicting those of us here about our lives, that we think it's too much to serve or we think that serving is a burden. I pray, Father, that as we serve, we will not only have pleasure as we serve, seeing and being used as your hands and your feet and your mouth, but we would also see that our souls are satisfied as you serve us in return. Father, give us confidence and boldness to live out our Christian faith. And Father, as we live for you and die for you, I pray, Father, that your good pleasure will be what we feel even when our circumstances are dire. Father, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.